Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Food, Wine, and Whiskey in Your Own Backyard. I'm your host, Rob. Uh, I guess today you can, you can, you'll know that I'm going to be going by Roberto, and uh, in just a couple minutes you'll find out why. Um, got two guests on the show today. It's going to be a lot of fun. Today's show is going to be all about wine, and I'm always excited when we get to do a show on wine uh, because I love exploring the world of wine, and one of our guests represents uh, some regions that I'm trying to get into, so I'm really looking forward to having this conversation because I'm going to get more educated on, you know, kind of what I can get exposed to in, in this region we're going to talk about today, but also in some future uh, episodes that we can cover with him, which is going to be a lot of fun. Uh, and then our next guest is going to, uh, they kind of go together because these two guys, one's an importer. And one has a virtual wine shop where, you know, anybody in the Houston area, surrounding areas, Katy, Cypress, you know, down in Pearland, wherever you might be, this gentleman can get you wine delivered right to your door. And I know at the time that we're in right now, that's, that's a great service to have available to us in the community. But uh, let's jump right in and introduce these two guys. We've got Simon Solomon. How you doing, Simon? Hey, Roberto. I'm great. How about yourself? I'm doing good, man. I'm doing good. And then we have Rob May. How you doing, Rob? I'm doing great, Roberto. <laughs> so you get, now you guys see why I'm going by Roberto today, is that we have two Robs on the show, and this way we can uh, kind of talk and we know who's who. And, you know, I don't mind going by Roberto. I think it's kind of cool. So here we go. Uh, hey, guys. <laughs> you guys doing well? Family doing well? I know the current situation, everybody's, you know, we're recording from three different locations to do this show today, but I hope everybody's doing well with you guys. Yeah, uh, everything everything's great over here. Uh, family is doing well. You know, we're 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 making it. Everybody's happy and healthy for now. Uh, we've got plenty of wine in the house, so uh, you know that's 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 all good. You know, it's crazy times that we're living in right now, and like you said, a lot of adjusting, um, a lot of new things happening right now. So uh, practicing the social distancing, you know, it's kind of funny how um, how you need to adjust and how much you miss other people's company sometimes but uh you know it's funny to, the things we take for granted right exactly but yeah. thanks to devices like this, doing podcasts and, and doing zoom calls and and so on and so on it's uh it's quite the adjustment but it's a it's a good learning process yeah, and, uh, you, you feel I'm bad glad, for those people a hundred a hundred years ago that didn't have these kind of advancements <laughs> man uh, exactly rob how you how you and your family doing we're we're doing great. Uh, spending a lot of a lot of time at home. Um, you know, my business, the wine uh, delivery business, is uh, uh, it's growing. <laughs> One of the few businesses that may that may be growing in this current situation. So I'm I'm running pretty hard, and not only that, I've expanded out to to Katie. You mentioned Pearland, Sienna Plantation. Uh, You're covering you all know, over. Those are. All over the place, and, and fortunately, I've got people that are consolidating orders out there, so uh, I'm able to, to make uh, more of a a, uh, a larger run. And uh, friends are telling friends about what I do, so it's uh, it's definitely growing, and that's something I'm extremely grateful for in the in the current situation. But well, other than that, we're, we're grateful that you're able to provide a service to us who you know who want some wine and and you know maybe don't feel comfortable getting out of the house and having somebody like you to be able to help us with that. I think it's great what you're doing, so we appreciate you going yeah. out and and uh, you know doing that for us. Hey, Simon, let's uh, let's start with you. Tell the listeners a little bit about who you are and what you do, because I'm excited uh, about jumping into the topic we're going to talk about today, and then we'll kind of 
pass it back over to Rob and let him give us a little bit more information on what he does as well and how people can get a hold of him. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, I work for an import company called Mundavino and uh, really, really, uh, really exciting times right now because um, we represent producers from uh, the areas of Spain, Portugal, and South America. And South America right now being uh, Chile and Argentina. Now, we've represented wines from Brazil. We've represented wines from Uruguay. But, you know, we're, we're, kind of, uh, we're kind of bound by what the market dictates. And we know that Chile and Argentina, when it comes to South American wines, is kind of where it's at. We recognize some good quality. Uh, we recognize uh, some good value coming out of this area. And that's kind of what we're sticking to as well. And not to say that those other two regions uh, are not producing good quality wines. Actually, you know, Brazil and Uruguay, are producing some uh, some really great to not right now to not blend and, and things of that sort, but that's for another time. But uh, yeah, today um, we uh, will be talking about one of our producers uh, called the Catena family in Argentina. And so we're going to be in Argentina it, today. Yeah, we'll be strictly in Argentina today, and we'll be talking uh, specifically about a series of wines coming from the Catena family. Uh, but you know. You know, well, let's, we're winding let's, it a little bit back. Yeah, let's jump in is, real quick. Hold on uh, a know, second. Let's uh so Rob, well let's yeah. let's say this. Simon, you're an importer, which means you yeah. go to these places, you find these wineries in these other countries, and you're the one who brings the wine to the United States. They then go to a a distributor. Well, Rob, I'm going to let you explain this because you guys have to work together and the simple way to sell it, uh to say it is Simon can't sell wine and Rob, that's where you come in. Right. 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 So briefly, Texas has a, what's called a three tier system. And Simon is a supplier on the top of that, uh, that, that tier system. Simon will sell his wines through a distributor. And then I can in turn purchase those and sell those to the end user. So I am the retailer. And, uh, working together with Simon, we, we show his wines and, uh, show them to, retail customers and then that's where i come in and actually handle handle the fulfillment of orders for those wines and retail customers are are everyday people we're not talking about retail customers like you know grocery stores or wine shops we're talking about you sell to the everyday consumer right and and a, a grocery store or a wine shop would be on the same tier level as as what i am correct what killer vino Right. I just don't want people to think that, you know, okay, Killer Vino puts, you know, he puts wines in the store. No, no, no. You order direct from you, from Killer Vino, from Rob May. Correct. Yeah. Hey, uh, before we go any further, jumping into Argentina, because I'm real excited about, you know, the discussion we're going to have. And, and I've had the Katina family wines, and they're fantastic. And I'm looking forward to talking about them a little bit. I do want to kind of shout out to our community. You know, we're here in the Houston area and the surrounding areas. And I just want to let everybody know or, you know, you know, really push these people to uh, support, you know, the, the local restaurants, the local uh pubs or whoever's kind of working with that, uh, you know, curbside or uh, delivery service and things like that, support these people. It's a real hard time right now. They absolutely need it. And, you know, food and restaurants and, you know, things that we want to be able to do again, uh, we need these people to open their doors back up. And when all this is over, we don't want them to shut their doors and be out of business. So we need to support them as much as we can right now and making sure that happens when we get through this, you know, situation we're going through with the coronavirus. So 
Just wanted to throw well, that out a there. A lot guys. of the, the, the wait staff, uh, they're basically down to zero income. And uh, some of them are able to work in the, the, uh, on the delivery side, actually working in the restaurant, preparing <laughs> the meals. But for the most part, they've lost uh, a huge percentage of their income. And, and I've got friends in the business and, and, and the, uh, in the service side. And um, it's pretty bleak for them right now. And, oh, it's and crazy. Not having any, uh, yeah, it's insane. And, and, and they don't have any idea when they'll have the opportunity to work again or if their restaurant is going to survive. I, I think there's going to be some major attrition because uh, there's so many restaurants that have just recently opened. And as, well, it takes a lot of money to open a restaurant. So they're not uh, having business to uh, to start to to make income, uh, I don't know. I, I don't know that. Yeah. So you know, whatever we can do as a community to support these places that are trying to stay open and continue to you know give us a place to get some food from, go support them. I know in our community, I'm out in Katy, and you know I, I can remember a year, a couple years, a few years ago, a lot of these places that are are going through this difficult time right now were the same places that we would go hit up to support. You know our youth sports programs and things like that. And they were great in the community of supporting those things. And right now they need us to support them. So if you can order from them, go, go pick up some food a couple times a week at different places. Um, if you don't want to go get food, just go buy some gift cards, you know, and support these places. They absolutely need it in our community um, until we get through this. Cause like I said, we want these places to stick around. They, they're fantastic part of our community and we absolutely enjoy, you know, what they do as far as food and things. So I want it to continue. We'll be back after a quick break. Hey, Bar and Girl fans, it's Jim with Madhouse Bar Talk, where me and my co-hosts sit around and talk about the things going on around Madhouse Bar and Grill in Elyria, Ohio. The whole conversation is unscripted, uncensored, and unedited. Anywhere where you stream podcasts, just remember, Madhouse Bar Talks, baby! In Rebecca, yeah, um, it's it's interesting because the the times that we've ordered out, it's 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 evident how much they appreciate it. We've had little notes in there, thank you so much. They may throw a dessert in, and we're not looking for anything, you know, any any lanyards or anything like that. But it's just it's heartfelt to see how much they appreciate the the business, and and it's. It's certainly every, worth it. Every it's little bit helps these it. guys, man. Every little bit helps. Yeah. Tip well. Tip those guys well. Absolutely. You're going to say, Simon? I was just going to say, <clears throat> yeah, kind of a, a grim situation, but uh, I guess the silver lining in this situation is, uh, you know, you get to try things that you would normally try. And uh, like like Roberto said, just kind of get out there and, and explore and, and really spread the love around because they certainly need it. You know, it's, it's kind of scary to think that, a lot of them are barely, barely hanging on. Uh, meanwhile, still keep keeping up with cash flow and expenses and, 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 and rent and stuff like that. Um, you know, it's kind of scary because we were just, uh, my wife and I were just speaking about a restaurant that we, we actually, we absolutely adore in, in Katy, uh, that we had just start, uh, started going to called Polyneuro. And, uh, we were just talking and hey, we, we need to go there at least once a week to go and support these guys to, to do our fair share. And hopefully they can keep their doors open uh, because we would hate to see them close. 
so it's coming to a situation like this. And I think that, you know, anything that anybody could possibly do is just go get out there and support, Yeah, you know, and also, you know, I I mean, honestly, the, 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 the the less time you could spend in a grocery store, I think is the better. I think that it's kind of strange how, you know, there's, there's still crowds of people, um, in these grocery stores. And, uh, like I said, what, what I'm for, we're sticking to right now, my wife and I is really staying away from the grocery stores, uh, right now and, uh, really getting like curbside and doing to goes and things of that sort. And, um, that's a you know, great point. Yeah, that's a great, kind of what Rob does is deliver, you know, front, uh, deliver white, uh, wine to your front doorstep, you know, with kind of a white glove service. Uh, but in this circumstance, it's more of a, a latex glove service. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, and, 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 you know, it's funny, not, not, not funny. I think it's accurate that, you know, when we have this kind of situation and, and we have this, you know, stay at home, work safe kind of, uh, uh, order in place for all of us, uh, you know, not in a bad way, but alcohol is one of those things I think we need, you know, it's, it's, you know, call it a coping mechanism, call it whatever you want. I mean, I think, you know, when you're, when you're dealing with things like this, to be able to have a glass of wine in the evening and, and things like that, it's, it's, to me, it's essential. It really is. So I'm glad these places are open for us. But uh, that kind of gets us into, you know, again, a little bit more about what you do, Rob. Uh, you've been doing this for a while. This isn't something that came up just because of the current situation. But uh, I, I think you mentioned earlier that you're a little bit busier because of the situation. That, that's and, true. Yeah. Well. The, the, the wine business, the alcohol business is, like you said, I, I guess people need it and, and the, uh, the powers that be recognize that because we are considered an essential business and we don't have the stay-at-home directives even in a shelter in place. We're still able, able to provide service. And delivery, it was an easy segue for me because delivery has always been a, an aspect of, of what I do being a virtual wine shop. You don't have a bricks and mortar that you can walk into. So I've always delivered and I just, I mean, it's, it's even more, more um, of a desirable aspect of, of what I do because people would rather not get out. Yeah. And um, so, I, I'm, again, I'm, I'm grateful. Well, for well that. thank you for uh, doing it. And, service. And we appreciate that, you know, listeners need to know when you do deliver, you, 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 you PPE up. I mean, you have your protective personal protective gear on. I mean, you're right. Yeah. Simon said white glove. I actually wear black gloves, black gloves and a black Latex. mask. So it's more like <laughs> Dexter delivers, <laughs> but, but I assure you I'm not dangerous. <laughs> and you'll leave it right at the doorstep or you'll set it inside, whatever they want to do. You'll make those arrangements with them. So it's very cool that you yeah, do that, Rob. Absolutely. But tell everybody if they want to get a hold of you, uh, email the best way, phone, text. What, what's, yeah, because what we do everything by email list. Okay. So at least once a week I send out what would be I guess you'd call it a wine list or a wine menu, and it includes specials. There's a lot of great pricing on on wine right now. They could be specials on wines that you know, the cake bread, the tamas, the duck horns, um, and other things. But I also include in those lists some suggestions of wines that, that I've tasted that might be some of my own house wines that I can stand behind and, and recommend with a, a lot of confidence. So the email contact is killervino at killervino.com. 
And you can just shoot me an email, say, hey, put me on the list, and you'll get a copy of the, the current current list. And I just sent one out yesterday, which has some, some cool stuff on it. And then you'll be on the list for any, any subsequent offerings. And I want to make sure yeah. people know, Rob, that uh, you know when they get on that list and you send that list out, that's kind of a weekly list that you put together of whether it be suggestions that you're making because you've gotten access to some great wines or they're on sale and they're really good prices on particular wines. But those aren't the only wines that are available to us as consumers. If there's something we want that maybe I can't, I had it at a friend's house, I can't find it in a store or something, I can hit you up with an email and say, hey, I'm looking for this. Can you get it for me? And chances are you probably can. That's true. If it's sold in Texas, I, I have access to it. And uh, that is part of the, uh, I guess I call it the research. I have a lot of folks, they'll be at a restaurant and they send me a picture of the label. And I always say send the front and the back because the information on the back label is actually more important to me than the information. Well, I, I need to know the name of the wine, but <laughs> the information on where to find it helps me uh, more the information on the back as opposed to just the name of the wine. But yeah, we, we do that all the time. And if there's a, a, a favorite that you, that you, one of, one of your house wines, uh, I, I, We'll be happy to provide that as well. It's not just limited to the list. Yeah, very cool, very cool. And that's kind of how I met you two guys, Rob. I was we went to Churrascos and we were doing a tasting, uh, and it just so happens, Simon, you were the uh, the presenter there there that day, bringing in your wines, uh, and it was from Argentina. So that's kind of how I met you two guys. <clears throat> yeah, Rob, I remember that day pretty clearly. <clears throat> well. Roberto and Rob were both present, and I, I believe we had uh, one of my guests with me, uh, Pablo Piccolo, yes. who works with the Catena family and has been with the family for many, many vintages now. Um, really, really incredible guy, native Argentinian, uh, just recently moved to Miami, and, uh, you know, more for a heavy focus uh, for the uh, for the domestic market, but... Yeah, I remember that clearly, uh, both of you guys, because I think, Rob, you had made a comment, Roberto, you had made a comment that you had tasted one of the Malbecs that we were pouring there, one of the many, and uh, you had commented that that was one of the best Malbecs that you had ever had. Yeah. And uh, that kind of that kind of resonated with me, and, uh, you know, we kind of developed the relationship from there, and, uh, yeah, and me, and me and Rob May have always uh, done some projects together uh we've worked closely and uh you know winding back to when i said the white glove service i always say that because rob really is is uh, meticulous uh in in working with getting you the, the the very best pricing that the market has to offer and also making sure that you're getting your orders uh as far as inventory levels and uh he, he really goes that extra mile from what i've seen with other retailers out in the market yeah. Uh, look, because there's really, it's, it's a, it's, it's some stiff competition out there. We talk about, uh, other small wine shops in the Houston area, but I think that Rob, you know, really does, um, does that really, really great job. And so, uh, I've always kind of gravitated towards Rob and, and doing business with him because he is able, uh, with a series of tastings that he, he hosts at, at random places and at his house as well. And we, we, we sometimes pick venues and we do these tastings where you would really otherwise not be able to taste some of the wines coming from really different regions and taste different varietals from all over the world. 
or even taste, you know, some domestic producers that really only produce a small amount of wine, Rob's going to have them there. And, you know, it's, it's very rare that you might be able to taste all of these in, in one sitting or one standing, I should say, because we kind of do that classic tasting style where you hop from table to table and you get to try a little bit of everything at your own pace in a more casual setting as opposed to kind of a stuffy wine dinner uh, situation. But, uh, you know, it, it just works and, and we click and I think it's just a, a good situation and I'm glad that we get to get on this, uh, this podcast call and kind of, kind of share this information with you guys. Well, and, and it's cool. And, and, and I got excited, uh, meeting you, Simon, because, you know, uh, I was, and I still am at that point. Uh, and I think people who really get into wine and, and really start to enjoy wine quickly realize that, you know, how big the world of wine is and going out on that journey to start exploring and finding different wines and from different regions and different varietals that, you know, there's so many I've never even heard of until I've had conversations with you guys and other people who are really into wine. It's really cool. But meeting you, Simon, and finding out kind of what you represent in wine, the regions that you do, Spain and Portugal and uh, Chile and Argentina specifically, where I'll be honest, three of the four were on my list of places I want to go and, and check out wine. Portugal, you guys educated me. I didn't even realize, you know, I'm, when I think Portugal, I'm thinking port, right? I think most people do. You've told me they, they've got some outstanding wines too. So it was really cool to, uh, to, to meet you and get to know that I'm going to get to explore some of these really cool wines that you represent. And today's wine is one of them uh, from Katina family. And we're going to stick kind of this conversation in Argentina, talking a little bit about Argentina and talking about this family specifically because you were talking about wine tastings and just so everybody knows sucks the situation that we're in. We all can't go out and kind of do these tastings together. So the three of us have kind of talked about let's uh, let's, let's see what we can do on a, on a zoom tasting. So we we've coordinated this next Monday, um, April 13th at 6 PM central time. And we'll put a link out on the Facebook pages and on Twitter and everything. We're going to do a zoom tasting of some wines that we're going to talk about today and I think that'll be really cool. Maybe we can get some people to jump in and a little entertainment, a little bit of education on, on Argentina and this particular producer and some of the great stuff they're doing. So that should be a lot of fun, guys. Yeah, we're looking forward to it. Yeah, absolutely. I think that um, it'll be a fun experience and, you know, kind of getting back to what you were saying about kind of broadening, broadening horizons. It's uh, I, I kind of started off in, in the – my, my love for wine started with California wines and I worked at a, uh, a steakhouse while I was putting myself through college and I worked at a steakhouse and we had access to some of the best amazing uh, domestic California cabs and shards and, and things of that sort. And that's kind of what made me fall in love. And then we started veering out of that. And then we started tasting wines from Australia, you know, getting introduced with tenfold and people like that. And then we started veering out to, to Italy, to France, to Spain, and then uh, South America came along very shortly. And, you know, I, I've, I've never really, like, looked back. You know, I still enjoy some of these domestic uh, wines to this day, but the way I see it is there's so many wines out there that you, you can you can drink a bottle of wine every day. You will not be nearly as close to getting yourself familiar with the entire wine world that's out there. Yeah. And as, as many producers are actually, you, you're seeing wineries kind of open up and, um, and, uh, and, and produce wines out of these regions and actually 
wine producing regions now that really didn't produce a whole lot in the past, you know, with modern technology, it, it's a wonderful thing. You know, hell, I've even seen Texas wines really take leaps and bounds over the past five to 10 years. Yeah, you know, I, 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 really, I think you're right, Simon. I think the last five years, specifically when you talk about Texas, because we went about 10 years ago and we were like, eh, all right. But the, we went this Yeah, past, exactly. Yeah, we went this past October and found some winemakers that, you know, kind of off the beaten path and went, holy cow, they're really, the game is being upped over here. They're doing a good job. Found some stuff we actually really Yeah, liked. and I think that that's just a good snapshot of what's happening around the world. So like yeah. I said, modern technology, you know, just a little more know-how and savvy. And, uh, you know, we, we live in a world of technology now, so this is actually easily accessible for most of these guys. And, you know, uh, the knowledge is there. And so we're going to, we're seeing this happening all over the world and granted, you know, not just Texas, but just in our areas that I represent, you know, we're, we're seeing improvements over the years. Uh, and that kind of segues into, yeah, I'm sorry, go ahead, Rob. No, I was going to ask you a question. I, I kind of feel like wine in the last, 10, 12 years maybe, uh, went from being, and this was my perception because that's kind of when I got into wine. I'm kind of a late late starter into wine, but I love it now. Um, it went from being that kind of sophisticated, classy, you know, snobby kind of drink to wine's cool now. I mean, there there's so many people that are drinking wine, and I, I see so many younger people getting into wine is that just my perception or do you two guys you know being in that world do you see that um, yeah absolutely. go ahead rob go, go ahead son. well it, it's it's true because i think that the, the the world of wine the selections and the, the things that are being imported by by you know, people like mondavino uh who simon works with that there's a lot more variety a lot more access and and I think too, people are are, and, and I know you're you're about whiskey too, Roberto. But I am. People aren't drinking spirits as much, and as people get a little bit older, maybe start to settle down, they they get more into food and and wine is. Is everybody okay? I, what what was it? You all right? Everybody all right? <laughs> I, I'm okay. I just, just skin my knee there. It's okay. Um, but, but, but when you get into food, wine is part of that culinary experience. And, and I don't know, in, in the States, in the U.S., we don't always think about that. We have a wine and we have it with a glass and that's good enough. But in Europe, even if you order a bottle of wine, they're going to put some sort of little uh, a snack or a tapa or, or, or something like that out there to eat with it. So wine is food and food it is wine and, and it, it just it intrinsically goes together. So I think as people be become uh, more savvy about culinary things and, and develop a love for that, the, the wine, uh, uh, wanting to explore wine along with that is just, it's, it's kind of a natural thing. So, and, and younger people too, I think, uh, just with the proliferation of it, uh, that, that people are getting into it at a younger age. And not all wine is ridiculously expensive now. It used to be a very expensive hobby. It still can be, but it doesn't have to be. And, and I think a lot of the, for me, uh, younger people, you know, they don't want to lay wine down. I think a lot of wines today are made that they're approachable. Would that be fair to say? You know, you can, you can drink them 
pretty much when you get them home. I mean, you can lay them down for a little while, but they're approachable now. Yeah, I agree with you on that, Roberto. I think that, um, yeah, just speaking about a younger crowd, you got to figure that, uh, you know, wine information is, is at the, at the click of a button now on your, on your, on your smartphone. So people are reading about these other regions, people are, are having access and, and not even that, just from my side, from the import side, we're seeing an uptick in, in, in wine trends that are coming in. So these are growing by the day. So we're seeing imports kind of, uh, growing in a big time way and not just from the areas that I represent, you know, in France and Italy, South Africa, you know, the list goes on and on, but sure. we're seeing uh, a big increase in that. And I think that that's people just opening up their eyes, but at the same time, it's kind of all the stars are aligning right now because even retailers like Rob, but even retailers, you know, that are big here in Texas. And I'm talking about big chain retail, they're starting to ramp up their wine programs as well. And they're starting to open up, uh, open up their eyes to, to different areas because they're starting to recognize value. And I think in this day and age, even prior to the circumstance that we're in now uh, with this whole COVID thing going on is uh, people are just looking for better values. And I think that that ties into something you were talking about, Roberto was, you know, I think it's, it's becoming more of a casual thing and, and what Rob said earlier about, you know, as we get older, we kind of settle down a little bit and not spend so much time with a whiskey bottle, even though I love me a good, uh, a good, uh, a good whiskey from time to time. But I, I can't really, I can't really enjoy that as often or as much as I do when I crack open a, a bottle of wine. Totally and, you know, when you're, when you're, when you're getting these, these valued wines, it kind of takes away some of the, um, uh, the preconceived notions that, uh, you know, uh, of course, everybody has a couple of really, really incredible bottles in their cellars that they want to hang on to. And it kind of reminds me of that movie, uh, <laughs> kind of reminds me of that movie Sideways, where, where Miles was uh, hanging on to that bottle of Chabot Blanc, I believe, to crack open and during his, his anniversary. Well, that never happened. <laughs> and he wound up drinking it in a fast food restaurant through a paper cup, you know, and right. it was just, <laughs> and I think that the, the world and the, some of the wines that we'll be talking about here in the next few weeks is um, we're, we're talking about casual wines, very approachable wines that you can crack open that you can have with a, uh, with a backyard barbecue or, you know, just a, a, a throwing a steak on the grill in the backyard or hell, even a hamburger, a hot dog or pizza. So, yeah, we want we want to try to take take that out of there and, and just say, hey, you know, we have these everyday wines that you could certainly enjoy, and um, I think and, and don't even, don't even think about money. So I think that's a gr a great point though uh, to let everybody know that we're going to be doing you know have several of these conversations with you two guys talking about because there's a lot to discuss with what you guys do uh, and, and specifically you Simon with all the wines that you represent that are available here in in Texas in Houston in the surrounding areas and that Rob can get his hands on for all of us uh, to enjoy because some of the wines you hear today that we talk about you may you may think that you've seen a Katina family wine and you may have in a grocery store or somewhere there's a few that are out there but a lot of them that we're going to talk about uh, aren't available in the grocery stores and that's where Rob comes in and he's great because he can get us access to these wines so uh, that's a great point but let's jump in, man. We're going to talk uh, Argentina today, and I'm real excited about this. And I know when people hear the, 
the the wine region Argentina, the first thing they think of is Malbec, and that's fair because let's 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 be honest. Uh, Argentina does a fantastic job with putting out some really good Malbecs. I think that's kind of their reputation, but that's not all they do. So I'm excited to talk about Argentina and talk about these wines. So Simon, take us take us into there a little bit. Yeah. So today we'll be talking about the the wonderful Catena family, but we'll 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 start off with just uh, opening up an introduction for uh, Argentinian wines in general. Uh, yeah, certainly one of the most important wine producing regions in the world. Uh, I don't know where they rank on specifically because, you know, all this is subjective information and we can say, Hey, they're number one in this, they're number three in this. But, um, I think that they kind of rank around number seven as far as wine producing regions in the world. And just within South America, Argentina is the largest producer of wine in that area. And honestly, it comes from a very small, the majority of that also comes from a small concentrated area that we're going to talk about today called Mendoza. And this is a very, very important region because like I said, this is kind of where the bulk of it is coming from. And in my, in my humble opinion, I think that some of the best wines from South America are coming from that region, specifically Argentina and Mendoza. But, um, but we'll talk about some Appalachian wines today um, because when I speak about Appalachian, this may be a, a term that most of you guys are familiar with, but uh, for those sure. of you that don't know, I, I'd like to kind of correlate that or equivalent that to something else that may be familiar because Appalachian wines within Mendoza are going to be kind of like village or village wines coming from France. So when we talk about, you know, areas like, uh, Von Romany, Pomard, Merceau, Volnay, you know, these are kind of the same things that we're talking about here. So they're smaller little concentrated areas where, where so, there's something very, very unique. Let uh, me I'm ask, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, let me ask it this way, because I think more, more people are familiar with like Napa. I think, you know, would, would it be the same as saying Stag's Leap or Calistoga or Oakville? Or, or is that kind of the same thing you know those are avas over there we know it comes from that part of the valley yeah yeah analogy would would be if you look at california as mendoza and simon's going to jump into uh like sonoma napa uh paso robles so it's taking this big region mendoza and actually talking about some some more specific places that uh the the climate and the uh the terroir I, i hate to use that word sometimes but it's uh, it's a catch-all for, for that. The, that particular uh, climate is is better suited for certain varietals, and, and right. it's it's nice so, to to break Mendoza into smaller parts. So the Appalachian just gets it into a smaller little region within that region. Yes, correct. So I, I think uh, if we're talking about California and we're talking about AVAs there, how that kind of correlates to that. So let's take for instance. Um, <clears throat> a bottle of wine from California, putting a California red wine on label would basically be an Argentina, an Argentina red wine. Uh, we go a little bit, we go one level deeper than that. And then we say a wine from Mendoza. And then that would basically equivalent to uh, a wine that says Napa Valley on the, on the label. And then we dive a little bit deeper into Appalachians that we'll be talking about today. Uh, and then that, that could kind of correlate to, places 
the AVAs that we really know and we see on labels in, in stores like Stag Sleep, Atlas Peak, Oak Knoll, Mount Veeder, right. Owl Mountain, Diamond Mountain, so on and so on. So, yeah, we're talking about specific little areas. And as, as Rob, Rob had mentioned, you know, each little, each little area has its unique or little stamp on what they do best. And, uh, you know, it's fun to explore that, you know, in this particular series that we'll be talking about is that we, we have Malbecs, 100% Malbecs all coming from different regions. And you taste these side by side and they're, they're wildly different. Uh, and, and we could, we can actually come up with a, uh, a, a common line here and we could say, Hey, these are all 100% Malbecs. They were actually all grown. They were all planted at the same time. They all use, use all the same oak regimen, but just the terroir and, and the, the soil and the climate and the, the elevation that we're talking about really contributes these different characteristics, which kind of make them a, a little bit different. And also, as Rob May said, that uh, even different varietals thrive better in certain areas. And, you know, through the research and or by trial and error, they kind of figured this out. They said, hey, this actually little Appalachian over here produces some of the best Chardonnay, in our opinion, uh, as opposed to this one. Or maybe we're sourcing better Cabernet Sauvignon in this area over here. And then these couple of areas over here do really incredible, deep, rich, robust Malbecs as opposed to high acid. So we're just talking about really, really vast differences within this little area right here. And I think it's important because when we go shopping for, for wine, I think that something that's going to be changing now uh, and, and really continuing forward that people in all of these regions are going to be getting a little bit more specific and they want to educate people as to, you know, what the style of stag sleep is, what the style of La Consulta or San Carlos coming from, from Argentina is. And so you can recognize that and you can kind of pick your favorite. So I think that's just a matter of more education uh, going on, and you'll be seeing a lot of these on label. I think, I think that's a great explanation. So now people really have an understanding of uh, – because I'll be honest, Simon, when you talk about all the French little villages and stuff, I, I'm – man, I like French wine, but I'm still learning, man. I don't know, you know, but I think well, California – Well, it's, it's, it's a rabbit hole you, you might want to take a lot of time. Maybe a couple <laughs> – maybe a – I wouldn't say avoid. No, there's – I'm kidding. You know, some of the – some of the best wines I've ever had have come from France yeah. and, and coming from those areas that I mentioned, but it's, it's, uh, you know, Hey, we all have time now. It might be a good idea to dive down that rabbit hole. Yeah, like no I kidding. said, the information is, is readily available. You can Google it. You, it's a, it's a short click away, but it, it may get confusing and it may make your head explode. But, um, you know, but then again, we, we have experts to kind of walk you through that and they're called sommeliers or people that are really, savvy in the wine world like rob and um yeah you know we'll, we'll kind of walk you through that but uh and uh simon real, real quick one of the things in breaking down appellations i mean the french <clears throat> they've got it down to a such a specific uh science that in burgundy you could be 500 feet away and it's a it's a different appellation and they've identified that the character of the wine from that you know, on the other side of the road, it's completely different than, than the, you know, the, the wine on the, the side of the road that they're standing on. <clears throat> but understanding Appalachians, there's a book by Kevin Zarelli called Windows of the World. I believe I'd have to get the specific uh, name of it, but Kevin Zarelli, and it's one of the best books 
for taking it's the first wine book that I read, and it just takes it down to to such a basic level that it was so easy to understand. And and I think that's a great place to start if you want to start uh, in, improving your knowledge about wines from you know uh, from Europe and that it's just an awesome book. And I'll give that that name to uh, Roberto to Rob Clark, and you can uh, you can post that on yeah, that'd be great, Facebook man. Page. That yeah, would be great. So, Simon, Katina family, just give us a before we jump into their Appalachian wines, just so people kind of have an idea who we're talking about. I mean, they're in in Argentina. I don't. I might describe them as the first family of wine in Argentina, or, or something. I mean, they're they're pretty, you know, well known over there. They're they're known for you know really putting. I don't know if they want to say put put Argentina on the map, but they've had a big impact with Argentinian wines being world-renowned. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. The Catena Zapata family has been <clears throat> has been in Argentina since 1902. They are, you know, when we mention that name, it's uh, it's very well-known. And we, we're not just talking about domestically. Uh, you know, I, I do a lot of international travel as well, and not just to these areas that I represent. But, you know, we, we go to places, and it's funny to see that so many people are familiar with this in, in most European markets in Asia, uh, all the way down to Australia, New Zealand, uh, South Africa. You know, the, it's funny to see that that South American wines make their way over there, and and how heavily they drink these wines over there because they recognize value as well, and they're they're recognizing um, good quality wines as well. And when I talk about that. Uh, the the Catenas Zapata family is, you know, the acclaim and the the accolades alone kind of speak for themselves. Uh, we we get a lot of um, we get a lot of praise uh, for this winery because of uh, their constant uh, their names in the headlines constantly. Uh, but you know, we can dive in that into that at another time. But yeah, getting back to the family, 1902 is when they first established there in Argentina. There were actually Italian immigrants who came over. And uh, established their their winery there, like um, 1902. And now they're in fourth generation with Dr. Laura Catena and uh, and her father, Dr. Nicholas uh, Catena. And they're kind of still running the winery. I think there's a there's a very slow transition for Laura taking over full reins for her father. Uh, he's certainly giving a, he's already given a huge contribution to the world to the world of wine in Argentina. And really made a name for the for the family, but Lauda is a very talented person, just an amazing, over accomplished woman. Uh, she's actually a uh, an emergency medicine doctor in San Francisco. Uh, she has time to run the the, the winery almost full time now, and she travels the world. She does trade shows. She's doing videos. She's actually writing books. She's just a, a, an amazing human being. But you know. Um, What's really interesting to see is the the process and, and, and having her medical background and how she's bringing that and introducing that to the to the wine world. And it was actually it was actually a collaboration between some of the winemaking team, Laura Capena and her father Nicholas, who they wanted to further the research and they wanted to have more resources. So they actually they're one of very few places that have a wine institute built into their main facility. Uh, uh, there and it's called La Piramide and within La Piramide, which is the main facility, if you ever get the opportunity to go, uh, that's kind of the main facility that you'll, you'll explore. But, uh, within that, 
within that site, they actually have a Catena Wine Institute and uh, they employ PhDs. They employ some of the brightest minds in Argentina. We're talking about people with, uh, we're talking about engineers. We're talking about agronomists. We're talking about enologists. Uh, it, it just goes on and on and on. So they have a pretty solid winemaking team, which is all overseen by a gentleman named Alejandro Vigil. And he's, uh, he's the chief winemaker. He's been with the family for over 16, 17 vintages. Uh, just a super talented guy. He's actually uh, what we call a, a soil expert. And so what, what everybody brings to the table is kind of something very, very unique. And everybody kind of contributes to the overall production of these wines. But, but, all, but um, all at a very high level. They seem like they're, it's a team of superstars. Exactly. I mean, we're, we're talking about, I, and I, I've had the opportunity to meet some of these scientists and talk with them. And, you know, my last trip over there, we, we got in some soil pits where they dig out the ground and they get to show you what's actually going on beneath the ground there. And, and you get to analyze that and you get to see what's happening. Believe You know, you get to see the sandy loam soils kind of mixed in with these big limestone rocks which is kind of ideal growing conditions uh, as far as soil goes for, for these vines to, 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 to cash root in. But I do want to, and, let, uh, when we talk, I do want to make sure, I'm sorry, that, go ahead. I do want to make sure that the listeners know, Simon, and tell me if I'm wrong, that when we talk about, you know, bringing the science behind uh, the wines that they're making, they're, they're not doing anything to the wine per se. They're just trying to figure out soils and the terroir like uh Rob May talked about earlier to, to best, you know, where do we plant the grapes? What kind of grapes, all this kind of stuff. So mother nature can do her thing. Right. That's, that's what we're talking about. We're not talking about genetically changing or doing anything to the wines. Oh no, we're just, no. We're that's talking actually, about that's... science and finding the best soil to grow the best <clears throat> grapes. Yeah. And I'm glad you clarified that Rob. Yeah. We're talking about minimal intervention here, but when I talk about the science aspect of it, I'm talking about tools and gadgets that they use to analyze soil. And, and, and as I was, talking before you know that my last my last stop there was we get to make bacteria samples and we're what we're doing is analyzing the bacteria in the soils and different strains of bacteria just as it works in our in our bodies with commensal bacteria if we didn't have these bacteria in our body we would be we would get sick and die uh and with all this microbiome that lives in our gut it's the same thing with plants so when we talk about bacteria and soils and how they affect, they actually communicate with those vines. These bacteria are living things. And so they communicate with the vines and saying, Hey, this year we need you to grow a bigger canopy. We need more shade in this, this heavy sunlight, or we need to grow the great skins a little bit thicker. And this is all the bacteria. And I, I, I kind of go off on a rabbit hole here and I, I apologize, but it's very important to know that yes, it is very minimal intervention. But when we analyze soils, they have gadgets to, to analyze light stresses on grapes and how that plays with the wine. Uh, all this is super important, but basically they're just, they're just sampling and they're, they're studying uh, of what the earth is doing. And I, I think that that's super important in the wine yeah. world today. And, you know, as I alluded to earlier, much earlier is, you know, we, we see improvements over the years and what the way I, the way I see it is, um, Argentina is actually, South America is actually considered a new world wine and not an old world wine. So what old world producers have had generations, you know, we're talking about centuries of, of, of experience, what they get to figure out the trial and error 
these new world producers, uh, you know, Catena being one of those is they're speeding this process up through science and they're, they're analyzing, they have the gadgets, they have the tools, they have the resources to really, really speed this process up and say, Hey, well, this isn't really working. I don't think, I think that that's actually, we can plant this here because we have different bacteria strains that produce uh, a little bit more heavily concentrated wines and, and how they respond to the very, very little rainfall that happens there in Argentina. So uh, a, a lot of stuff being thrown around, and I know this is uh, a lot to take in all at once, but, you know, we can we can certainly dive into that um, a well, little it, bit more in depth. It, it at least paints the picture that, uh, you know, Argentina, specifically Catina family, they, they are serious about wine. They're dedicated to putting, you know, the best stuff in the bottle. And, uh, you know, they know what they're doing. You know, they have some experience being there since 1902. But I also want to make it clear, and Rob May, you can, you can kind of hit on this too. You know, people hear all this technology and tools and scientists and all, and they go, you know, shit, that costs money. How much does that impact the cost of what I'm going to, you know, buy from them? What's, what's in the bottle? But these, these wines, Rob May, are still very competitive in cost for what you're getting, right? I mean, very reasonable. Well, from a retail standpoint, the Catena wine has, uh, or the, the Catena uh, portfolio has wines at every level. They have some wines that would be only accessible to collectors, and then they have wines that, uh, you know, for somebody like me, is, is an everyday, an everyday drinker. So it, it really, it's it's a very broad spectrum of pricing, and and. Really, and this is one of the reasons why I've worked so much with Simon. And it's, it's Katana, but it's it's everything that he has. It's it's uh, it's good quality from top to bottom, regardless of the price point. I think all the wines that I've had uh, that Simon's introduced me to outperform their price level at whatever the retail price may. They be. punch up, and and at the end of the, I'm, I'm sorry, I said they punch up. They punch above their weight class. They they punch up. That is for sure. That's for sure. And, and at the end of the day, when I, when I select people that I want to work with and, and things that I, I really want to get behind and promote, that is how I, I want to vet things is to try to find wines that outperform what I'm going to charge for them. So I want to give value to everybody and, and, and certainly uh, Katina, they do punch up. I, I love that term. I've never heard it, but that's, that's a good one. <laughs> well, okay, then that leads us into what we're going to talk about today, Simon, which is, you know, I know we already mentioned it, and we kind of got off to Argentina a little bit, but the Appalachian series from Catina, and we've kind of already explained what an Appalachian is. So let's jump into the wines. Let's We've picked out six, or you picked out six, that you wanted to kind of highlight here today. And just so everybody knows, after we kind of talk about what, what we're going to discuss today, these will be the same six wines on Monday on the Zoom that we'll actually taste and get a little bit more into. But uh, let's talk about them right now. Yeah, so um, the Catena family owns multiple sites uh, in this area. And they're pretty, I wouldn't say they're too too far apart. Uh, some are closer than other ones, but they span a couple of different appellations and sub-appellations that um, they, have, they have some variety. They have a lot of room to play. And all of these different appellations have something very, very unique about them. Whether the soil type is a little bit different, 
the elevation is a little bit different. We're talking about the difference between a couple of thousand feet uh, above sea level. And that actually plays an integral role. I, I think that high elevation is kind of something that you guys want to tie in. And I hope this resonates with you is that high elevation is actually very important to what Argentina does as a whole and not just the Catena family. We're talking about uh, most producers coming out of this area that uh, something that's very important is the, the elevation. And when we talk about elevation, uh, we're talking about, you know, vineyard sites that are in the foothills of the Andes Mountains. So we, we do have a lot of range there. And if you, if you consider the history of the Andes Mountains and what's going on beneath the ground, uh, we have a lot of geology. We have a lot of activity over the, over the last couple hundreds, thousands, millions of years in this general area. And when you have plates pushing up once uh, against each other and they kind of converge that create the Andes Mountains right there and all the, the little smaller mountain ranges that surround the Andes Mountains, we're talking about a lot of different uh, soil type elevations. And I think Rob may have mentioned this earlier when he, he was talking about the French wines was you can literally throw a stone a couple rows over and the soil type would be wildly different than where you just threw it from. So that lends to <clears throat> really, really different styles of wine uh, that we get to experience in this area. But, you know, when I talk about a stone throwaway, we're talking about single vineyard wines. And at that, we actually go even a little bit further and we go into single parcel wines. But that's going to be for another segment. When we talk about Appalachian wines, we're still talking about what they want to do is identify what is grown best in that area. And I kind of mentioned this loosely a little bit earlier that, you know, they have identified Chardonnay is done best coming from a certain region. And the, one of those that we'll be talking about is the Tupungato region. Uh, and they feel that some of the best Chardonnays are coming from this, this little area and, uh, from Tupungato because of the soil types. And we're talking about good drainage in the soils. We're talking about just the right elevation. Um, we're talking about cool, cool weather which kind of slows down the ripening process, kind of draws it out a little bit longer, which kind of, it does a little bit something for those polyphenols in there. Basically, it kind of just matures that wine a little bit better. And so kind of the same thing to follow suit. We talk about Cabernet Sauvignon is doing, doing best in the Agrelo region, which we'll get to isolate that. And we'll get to taste Cabernet Sauvignon coming just from that little area. And then we also do a Cabernet Franc called San Carlos, which comes from the little San Carlos area where they feel that some of the best Cab Franc is coming from that area. So like I said, what they want to do is they, they've done all the research for you. They've done all the trial and error, and they bring you the best of the best from each region. And then also we'll get to experience three Malbecs. Uh, we'll just kind of list those. We have Paraje Altamira, which is, you know, that kind of, for those of you that speak Spanish uh, or, or not, it kind of just indicates uh, kind of a lookout point. And so that kind of indicates just the higher elevation. And um, and then we move on to La Consulta, and then we'd go on to Lunlunta. And stylistically, these are all kind of different. And the fun part about it is, is if you get to experience all of these side by side, you get to kind of pinpoint what's, what's your style of Malbec that you like. Because Malbecs could go all over the place. Malbec is not just this one, one, one and done. Uh, they can really, really range from a little bit medium-bodied style 
to to a, a heavier, richer style, and everything in between. Whether you like a little bit more fruit-driven wines, whether you like high-acid, age-worthy wines, or, or, or kind of a mix of the two, you get to identify what what type of Malbec drinker are you. And I think that that's the fun part. And this is kind of the Appalachian series that we talk about, and it's um, <clears throat> it'll be a fun little uh, a fun little journey that we get to go through, and hopefully. Uh, we get to set up and maybe we get to all experience this together and we will actually find a way that we can do this maybe through that, that Zoom tasting and then we could kind of build on that where we can actually taste with, with you guys live and then you can actually ask me questions as we go along. Uh, and at the same time, I think it's, it's fair because I'm a, I'm a big fan of maps. I like to visualize, and I know it's hard to visualize everything that I was talking about today. You know, we, you guys, you know where the Andes Mountains are. You know where South America is. But where are these wineries actually located, and at what elevation, and how far apart are they, and how is that in relation, you know, to, to the sun exposure and things of that sort? How far is it from the sea? You know, it, um, it, it's just really, really good to see and visualize this on a map so what we'll do is kind of put together some information packets and we'll kind of share it all on a drive so everybody has access to it and uh i, I just think that that's a it's a good way to follow along enjoy the wines and and educate yourself at the same time and and simon you mentioned uh, minimal intervention and that's something that i think is a big part of what katana does they they um they're not into overly oaking their wines, they uh, they do let the the terroir, that the sense of place, shine through, and and that's why when we talk about these different appellations, and actually I haven't tasted all of the Malbecs from those different appellations, so I'm excited about about seeing what each of those those places brings and and the uniqueness of the character of each wine made from the same grape. And uh, I think that's uh, I'm, I'm excited about that, and, and really I, I'm excited about uh, actually drinking and recording. So I, I think that'll be uh, uh, even more fun than we're having now. It's uh, I think you're just excited about the drinking, Rob. So well, I'm <laughs> yeah, always yeah, excited that's about, about that. Right. I, I mean, <laughs> we, we should do it. Uh, we could do one of these and, and record all day long. We could see how it, it, it uh, if there's either uh, it gets better or, or worse. <laughs> Until we start slurring, right? Yeah, uh, yeah, Rob. I'm I'm glad you brought that up again because that is an important term when we talk about minimal intervention. Yeah, it's it's super important because I think that uh, as time progresses, we 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 look for these wines that are that are minimally intervened, and it's fun to see what the earth gives you from year to year. So you can go to even a California producer. Uh, and a lot of these are modeling their, their winemaking processes and they have been for a while, but I think it's becoming a, a, an ever so popular thing where you don't need to be a master blender and you don't need to be just doing all sorts of crazy stuff that kind of manipulate these wines. We want to talk about zero manipulation. Sure. You know, and this kind of ties into an argument that we hear about. We talk about natural wines. We talk about organic wines and this is, uh, a long conversation in itself, but at the end of the day, the idea is just to basically let it do what it does. And when we talk about places that are naturally irrigated, you got to figure that Mendoza is a cool desert. Basically, it's a cold desert. 
and they get very, very little rainfall. But, you know, what makes Argentina very, very unique, or actually South America, because when we go to the other side, Chile actually has the same advantage that they get a lot of runoff from the Andes Mountains, which is a naturally occurring thing, you know, uh, through the winter, they, they, they snow peak and, uh, you know, at certain times of the year, right around harvest time or right around the growing season, they're, they're actually getting this beautiful water source. And I mean, really, you, it, it's, it's cool to see when you go over to these areas and you get to see all these little canals and ditches dug and they kind of run right by the vineyards and it's, it's, it's just all natural, you know? And, um, I'm not saying that they don't intervene and have to irrigate sometimes, but very, very little, uh, that they do that. And they kind of just let it do what it does. And it's, it's pretty cool because it kind of takes you back in time because you got to figure all this modern technology wasn't there back then. And they, they found ways to make it work and they're producing some of the best wines. And I, I always like it because it, it always takes me back. And if you're ever in the area, it, it's not only about the wine, it's about the culture there. And it's a really, really unique experience. And kind of talking about wines casually, uh, they take it very casually over there. They, they drink it, you know, very, very often. I wouldn't say breakfast, lunch, and dinner, but they're, they're always drinking wine and they're always eating meat and they're, they're always outside. And like a backyard barbecue is the same thing as what they call over there is called an asado. So, you know, families getting together, friends getting together and just starting a, a, a big old fire and putting some racks over that and cooking some, some delicious meat and vegetables over an open flame and, um, well, Simon, you know, listen to some, you, you, yeah. you and I had talked before, uh, about, you know, kind of Texas is, is one of the, the bigger drinkers of Malbec and Katina, I think specifically, uh, but you kind of tied that into kind of our cultural similarities when it comes to the kind of meats and things they eat over there versus, you know, in Texas, it's about the barbecue and, and, and things like that. So talk about that a little bit. Yeah. So, you know, and not just because I'm biased. Um, I, I absolutely love Malbec. I always you, have. You are biased, Simon. <laughs> I, I'm super biased. But guys, biased. There, there is a lot of similarities between the cuisine here. Uh, like I said, the grilled meats, uh, you know, my experience over there, they don't do kind of the, the, the classic smoking. And I know that smoking meats is, is a big thing here. I, I, I like to, I like to see, uh, to say that I'm pretty good at it myself and I, I do a little bit here at the house. And now, you know, my wife thinks I'm insane because I smoke everything. Uh, I smoke poultry, any sort of bird, you know, a brisket, ribs, sausage. Uh, I even started smoking fish, you know, like salmon is, uh, is really, really wonderful. So we do kind of like a hot smoked salmon and it's just absolutely to die for. But you know what? even with barbecue, with barbecue sauces, we all know that that's a thing here in Texas. And yeah, to me, Malbecs are perfect for these because they're, they're very approachable and they're not with those really, really stiff, harsh tannins. You know, I, I think that I, I'm not sure at what point in time and I'll rewind to when I said that I got into California cabs, but the California cabs that were coming out at that time, I think the idea was the bigger wine, the better. And they just wanted these huge, massive wines that you literally had to peel off your teeth after drinking a few glasses. But I think today, everybody's looking for subtlety. You don't, you don't want one thing to overpower the other one. You want, you want harmony. 
Um, and I'm not telling everybody, you know, hey, this is what you should like. If you like big wines, that's your thing. But in my personal preference, and I think that the reason why, you know, Rob Roberto, like you said, is is Malbec's very, very popular here in Texas because a lot of the similarities with the cuisine and just the approachability of these wines. We have softly integrated tannins, and we're talking about just nice, smooth flavors that basically complement each other and really not one overpowering the next. Yeah. And I think that that's super important when we're, when we're doing wine pairings. And you look, I'll be the first one to tell you that, uh, you know, I'm not big on wine pairings. I think that everybody should really explore it and find out for themselves. Everybody's palate is wildly different. Uh, everybody's perceptions are wildly different. And I, I, I don't like classic wine pairings down to a T where they say, hey, you know, with this steak, you should have this particular coming from this region, coming from that. Um, you know, because I'll be the first one to drink fish with red wine and I'll drink, you drink fish? Uh, sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> I'll, <laughs> I'll drink fish with red wine. So, you know, or, you know, sometimes I'll have a steak and I'll have a nice glass of white wine with it. So I'm not, I'm not kind of along those lines and, uh, you know, no, I'm it's all about you. exploring and finding out what you, what you like for yourself. Yeah, I'm with um, you. I wanted to bring that up more because I think uh, I think a lot of people hear about Malbec, and I think it's becoming very popular. I, I I know I see from places in California they're starting to make you know Malbec is one of the the primary grape in, in things that they're producing. You know, so much so that it's on the label listed as a, a Malbec, not a Cabernet Sauvignon. And you know, listeners around here are going, okay, I'm I'm intrigued about a Malbec. I've never had one. You know, what do you what do you drink it with is it just a porch pounder or can do i eat it with something i wanted to make sure they know with the texas cuisine like you just said malbecs are fantastic man they go great with a big old juicy steak it doesn't always have to be a cabernet but by all means drink a cabernet once in a while and then switch it up you know try a malbec with it see what you like uh i think you'll be uh pleasantly surprised to go man dang malbecs are pretty good too yeah yeah and i think people will be pleasantly surprised you know when you you know, there's a lot of people, when I, what I've experienced, and I, I know Rob May could chime in on this, that there's a lot of people out there that really stick to their guns, you know, uh, people that drink their favorite California red wine that they've been drinking for 15 years, 20 plus years nonstop, you know, they, they kind of stick to it. And that's fine and dandy. But I think that, you know, if you take 15 to 20 years and you say, hey, I could, I could fall in love with this wine from, from Argentina or Spain or Chile or something like that. And I'm spending half of what I do. You know, it kind of lightens up the, the, the pocketbook there. And, um, you know, I, I think it's a good experience for people to just kind of broaden their horizons and find out because I think you'll be pleasantly surprised about what you may find. You yeah. know, some of my most favorite wines now are wines that are in the in the mid-teen ranges now. So like 15, 16 bucks, you know, I've even experienced some wines that are sub $10 coming from Spain, Portugal, you know, it's just, um, and it, it's certainly great because that affords me <clears throat> to have a couple lay down bottles that I want to add to my collection. So when you, when you look at that and you look at about building a nice collection on stuff that you could have on special occasions, um, you know, and if your everyday wine is, is, is affording you to do that, I think that that's, that's something that kind of diversifies your collection at home. And, uh, uh, it's just, it's just fun. No, I was thinking, I think that's a great point, Simon, because there are, I think some people think too, too often they look at the, uh, the cost of a bottle and they get to a point where, you know, when you get used to drinking California wines, um, and I don't want this 
to sound kind of like I'm being a jerk or putting you in a category, but you know, the, the price of California wines aren't cheap. You know, when you start to get in a, a decent cab is going to be 25 to 35 bucks. And then it just goes up from there to, you know, several hundred dollars a bottle. And a lot of people are spending those dollars. And I think they get to a point where they think that's my floor. Now, you know, a good wine has to cost, you know, 25 to 35, 40 bucks. And it's just not the case when you get, you know, out into the world, places like Argentina, even, you know, old world, France, Spain, Italy, you can find some fantastic wines for a really good value. So I think, you know, when you get into wine, that's part of the fun is exploring these new places, but it's also really cool to see that crap, man, I can get some really good wine at a really good price. And, uh, to your point, you can lay down some other stuff or you can just build up more of what you can have in your house. Uh, so when people come over, you have just a bigger selection to pick from. Well, yeah, absolutely. Um, <clears throat> you know, I, I like to, to tell this little story, and I'll be quick, Rob. Um, you know, when I first started getting introduced and trying wines, and, and what we're trying to say here is, like, we're not trying to, like you said, put California in a category because California does amazing stuff. And, you know, we, we have a lot to thank them for, you know, for broadening and, and creating a wine market here. So we owe them a lot. Yep. You know, and uh, a lot of lot of history there and uh, a lot of important things and a lot of important people. But, you know, it, it's funny and I like to tell the story because, look, when you try other wines, it's not to say that you might not come across, <clears throat> you might come across some, some bad wines. You're, it's going to happen when you're, when you're getting out there and you're exploring the wine world. Um, <clears throat> and I always like to tell the story because the first time I ever had a Tempranillo from Spain, uh, it was, I think I was in a, like in an HEB or a Kroger or something like that. And I picked, you know, a, a fairly inexpensive Tempranillo off the shelf. Um, I got home and I was, let's just say I was highly disappointed when I cracked that bottle open. I mean, I was just like, I've never tasted anything like this before. And I really can't get into it. You know, it tasted just leathery, barnyardy. It tasted like a boot. You know, it was just absolutely <laughs> horrendous. And so, you know, I always tell that story because, years later and you know, look that that kind of ruined tempranillo for me for a while so i explored other regions and you know we found some gems here and there and it wasn't maybe a few years later that i came back full circle to tempranillo and as you get educated you get to find these particular producers coming from smaller little areas kind of like what we're talking about now is appalachian specific you get to find these things and you get a little more savvy on which producers are some of the better producers out there but what we want to do all of us collectively with, uh, with these tastings is kind of, kind of take that away. We'll, we're going to skip you that step and we want to kind of guide you into things that we think, and hopefully you trust us enough to, uh, to try our suggestions because look, I've had some bad Malbecs out there and, and, and it, it's funny to see that uh, a lot of these mass produced wines, whether we're talking about Tempranillo, whether we're talking about Chianti's, uh, or Malbecs or Cab Francs, you know, we've had some bad stuff out there and it's still on shelves today, you know, with, with, with a couple million dollars in marketing dollars, you know, companies are able to pump out some wines and keep those on shelves and keep people buying those somehow, some way. But what we want to do is eliminate that process for you and, you know, kind of guide you through the process. And hopefully, you know, like, like I said, yeah, people kind of, align themselves with our suggestions and, and, and see if they like them too. Yeah. 
Yeah. Well, were, go ahead, Rob. A couple Rob. of things that I, I just want to throw in there because uh, it actually um, there's a lot, lot to uh, uh, add from a retail standpoint. What I've found uh, when you start talking about wines that are in the teens, the sweet spot, sweet spot for value. What I found is about 12 to 25. And there's a lot of things in that range that are just superb wines. When you get down below 10, uh, I think you have to be a lot more selective. Uh, but there, there are things there, but definitely that 12 to 25 range, if, if that's where your budget for a bottle of wine is, there are a lot of options. And the other thing is we can talk about uh, uh, bad wines. Now, there's some wines that are just bad. And, and uh, I mean, <laughs> that's still a matter of opinion, but <clears throat> there are some that are just bad. Uh, but, again, there are a variety of flavor profiles that one person may like something that's super fruity and somebody else might like something that's like glass and barbed wire. So, again, that range of, of styles also is important because – not everybody has the same palate. And as Simon's saying, when we make suggestions, when I make a suggestion to people, I always talk to them a little bit about what do you like to drink? And I've had enough experience in talking with people and making wine suggestions that a lot of times I can, I can pull from wines that I know that I've tasted and say, hey, try this. I think you'll like it. And one thing that I've done, and people have tried to trust me over the years, I've worked with some clients for 12 years now. Um, look, if you don't like something that I've suggested, just let me know. And, and I'll, I'll make it right and replace it. It's not like, you know, I've, I've given you six bottles and you give me glass. And you said I didn't like any of this. But you usually, you know, within the first glass. And, and I'll certainly stand behind my suggestions. And, uh, uh I, I think it, it goes a long way, but stylistically, you, you've got to you've got to figure out what your palate is, and then that range can go from something very narrow, and it can gradually expand. Yeah, that that would be my point. You always want your palate to continue to grow and expand. That's the the fun of wine. Don't get locked into to one thing. That would be my suggestion. That's that's kind of how I am. And I think if you're going to explore the world of wine, you you have to have a little bit of an open mind. You know of where the wine's coming from and how they, you know, make wine there and what the intent of that wine is supposed to be, not what you expect it to be, because it says it's also cab, cab, Cabernet Sauvignon, like it is. It's not going to be the same from California if it's not from California. But uh, I, I do also want to – you go ahead, Rob. Yeah, well, and I was going to say that when we get back to actually – when we get out of social distancing, if we, if we ever do, um, which I, I think we will eventually – uh, when we get back to the, the, the tastings that, that I host, um, which was a big, we would do at least at least one a month, sometimes two a month, but we put a broad variety of wines on the table and wines from all over the world. And the best way to learn about your palate is to taste wine at every opportunity. If there's things on a, a, a menu at a restaurant that are by the glass, you might say, Hey, do you mind? Can you pour me a, a taste and let me taste these two, and and I'll pick from that. Um, you got to taste wine to 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 learn about it and, and to be able to to uh, 
broaden your palate. And it's difficult to do that a lot of times when you go to a, a wine shop or something. There's all of this this uh, selection. And every time, you may not want to light 20 bucks on fire picking up something that you're not familiar with and, and then having the chance that you're not going to like it and it's going to turn out being uh, part of your spaghetti sauce or something like that. So, um, you know, if you, if you ever have opportunities to taste, I think it's really important to take advantage of those opportunities. Yeah, and it's a great point because we do need to get back to what you do, Rob. And when you say you put up a bunch of wines on the table, a bunch, uh, typically around 30 wines, would that be fair? That's what we found is, is a good a, a good number. Um, we've done them much, much bigger. And um, it really, the, the crowd that we would generally draw would be somewhere between 30 and 50 people. And 30 wines, after you taste wine, um, you get palate fatigue. And it just gets to a point where you yeah. can't taste any. Yeah, and the point more or everything starts tasting good. <laughs> and uh, but, that's but, not palate fatigue. That's uh, that's intoxication. But um, but, but yeah, but thirty is, is a is a good number. And if you can taste all of the thirty wines, uh, you you've accomplished something. Um, but that's but not your not, that's, 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 a, that's not your point with the thirty. The point with the thirty wines is to make sure there's something for everybody, right? You you have a wide well, range. It's not thirty the same wine, same type of wine. Correct. It's a variety of wines. So that if we come to one of your events, there's going to be at least five or six wines we're going to get to try that uh, we know is kind of in our what I'm looking to explore. And then we might stumble onto some other things. But there's always going to be something there for for people to like. That that is correct, and and if you can taste if you taste thirty wines and you can't find something that you like out of that, then there's probably very little hope for you. Yeah, I, I like coming to yours because I find my first you know four or five that I want to try and, and know what I'm going to order. Then I just start drinking the rest of the night. I mean, it's a good night. That's generally what we do. <laughs> we put them put them all on the bar and just kind of chill out and. Uh, sometimes it, it takes uh, a little while to, to really decide. You have, you have to date a little bit before you decide what you want to, you know. That's exactly right. What you want to marry. <laughs> <laughs> I, I do want to get back to California. I do want to get back to California a little bit. I, I didn't mean to, uh, you know, make it sound like I'm, I'm knocking California. I love California. I'm members at several wine wineries out there. My point would be is that, you know, just don't get locked into price equating to good value or or good wine necessarily Uh, i totally get why california wines are a little bit more than than other parts of the world because real estate in california it ain't cheap fellas so uh you know uh, that's a big reason as to you know why we you know a lot of people complain about the price of california wines but i think and I'm not I'm not an expert on it, but I think that's probably the biggest reason why is uh, the cost of real estate, the cost of taxes. I mean, those poor people out there, they're farmers, and they get beat up pretty good with uh, California wanting some money. When when you talk about a, a good segue, uh, when we talk about old world versus new world, uh, there there tends to be a at least a, a similarity in temperature and climate between new world and old world wines. Uh, the old, I'm sorry, the new world climates tend to be a little bit warmer. And so the wines will not exactly, but they will have some similarities. So when we talk about segueing from 
say California, a place like Argentina is, is an easy segue, and it's not going to be there's there's not this broad chasm in between of the the, the styles where it's going to be so far out there that that it's it's a good the bridge is short between California and Argentina. It's a little bit longer maybe between California and let's say Spain or, or anywhere in the European wine world. Right. So it's it's a good place to start. Well, let's uh, let's get ready to to wrap it up. Let's go through one more time and uh, mention the wines that we're gonna. Again, these are gonna be the wines that we're gonna have on Zoom Monday, April thirteenth, this next Monday, six p.m. Central Standard Time. We'll put it out everywhere. But uh, Simon, these are gonna be the six wines that we're gonna taste through on Zoom, do a live tasting. And listen, if you have a bottle of Katina, you know any bottle pop it and join us. We'd love to have you on there. If you don't have a bottle of Katina, no worries. Just pop anything you like to drink and just, uh, it'll be fun to get on and learn a little bit about, uh, Katina and the wines they're putting out in Argentina in general. I think it'll be a fun, fun entertainment. And what do you got better to do? Right. I, I think most people will be home. Would that be fair to say? We're talking about everybody being able to join in and actually, this is live. Like a, yes. Yeah, this is Zoom. the quarantine. Where, where you have a happy hour and, and everybody, uh, okay, yeah, that, that's very, very cool. I know my, my wife's been doing that with a group of her friends. and uh, Yeah, I've been um, doing it with a group of friends. A we're just going to kind of make it a little bit bigger instead of just, you know, casual chit-chat. We're going to kind of let Simon, you know, educate us a little bit on wine. I think a lot of people want to learn a little bit more about wine. And Argentina and Catina is going to be cool, cool place to start. Yes, it is. Absolutely. All right, so let's go through Simon one more time. Tell us these uh, these six wines, and then we'll we'll sign off with the people. And so yeah, we'll be tasting. Uh, we'll be starting it off with uh, a Chardonnay, Tupungato Chardonnay, and then we'll probably move on to a uh, a Cabernet Franc from the San Carlos region, and then we'll uh, get to experience a Grelo Cab, and then we'll move on to three Malbecs after that: Paraje Altamira, La Consulta, and Lunlunta. I know that's um, that's a lot to take in all at once, but you know by the end of the Zoom tasting, I I, I expect everybody to pronounce all of those properly. And um, <laughs> Good luck. but yeah, guys, uh, all jokes aside, it's going to be a fun, fun experience, and hopefully we can get into a process where we can actually get these wines into your hands, and then we can actually taste through these together. I think this first go round is going to be just more of us talking about casually about the wine, but hopefully we can develop the process and then we can just all educate and, and have a good time. Cool. That's cool. going to be a that lot sounds, of fun. Sounds well, like fun to me. Yeah, absolutely. Guys, thanks for coming on and uh, having the conversation, kind of covering everything that we did. I appreciate it. Uh, looking forward to Monday. That's going to be a lot of fun. To the listeners, thanks for joining us on this episode of Food, Wine, and Whiskey in Your Own Backyard. And until our next episode, enjoy your next pour.